www.ironradio.org. Uh, this is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist. I'm a former competitive bodybuilder, and I'm a nutrition professor. Hello, I'm Robert Fortress Fortney, former editor at Muscle Mag International, former competitive bodybuilder, and current strength enthusiast. And welcome aboard, everybody. This is Charles Staley, author of Muscle Logic, creator of Escalating Density Training, and I'm also a master's level competitive weightlifter. And this is Phil Stevens, uh, strength coach, powerlifter, founder of LiftForHope.org, and all around nice guy. <laughs> That's such a load of crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest today is is not a load of crap. Uh, Chris Shugart <laughs> agreed agreed to come with us. How about that? Production ever, not a load of crap. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so Chris is going to join us today. Chris, many listeners, of course, know about. He's been a sort of a fixture, if you will, in internet bodybuilding for years on websites like um, you know T Nation or T Muscle, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, Chris Hales from Texas, but I don't want to get into too much about him. I I just like to start with uh, a couple of questions, actually, Chris, about who you are. Uh, you're, as I I mentioned before when speaking with you, it's a uh, you're you're so good at propping up other people and focusing on others. Uh, this time I want it to be about you. So who are you? Um, you could talk about where you hail from or your age or defining features, whatever you think is uh, is appropriate. Well, uh, you know, I always kind of describe myself as the regular guy who got into this whole fitness, physique transformation, bodybuilding, strength training sort of field. Uh, I mean, I grew up a, a, a really chubby, non-athletic kid, uh, you know, kind of almost your typical picked last on team sort of guy. And when I got into college, I went from chubby to absolutely completely overweight. I mean, I don't remember exactly what it was, but yeah, I, mean, I believe my body fat percentage was somewhere around 38, 40%. I mean, it was really ridiculous. And I had this pivotal moment, really. And it happened, it's kind of how, you know, how two things just sort of come together in, in life. And I was pursuing uh, one of my degrees in psychology at the time. And at the same time, I was this incredibly overweight, unhappy guy. And as part of also getting a teaching certification, I had to take this required PE course. Well, they took our body fat percentage at the time, and the only thing I really remember about it is this really cute college girl. I had to take off my shirt in front of her while she attempted to do a pinch test on me, and her calipers could basically barely get around the the gigantic roll of fat around my, my midsection and my love handle area. And this happened on almost the same day when I was in one of my psychology classes, and we were talking about ego defense mechanisms. And one of those was rationalization, when you sort of make excuses for yourself to sort of justify your bad behaviors. And my bad behaviors at the time was basically uh, being a sloth and eating way too much and just being completely out of control with my diet. I was a big stress eater at the time. And those two things sort of sort of came together, and I just I just broke, you know. I, I I really I just broke, and this I mean this manifested physically. I, I put my fist through a mirror, and I said, "This is not me. This is not me." I know that overweight people are perceived as as lazy, as stupid, and I'm I'm I am neither lazy or stupid. And, and I couldn't believe what I had allowed myself to become and, and how I'd let my, my potential slip basically all my life. 
and, and, I, and I broke down, and I, I ended up losing uh, 60-something pounds. Uh, I did not do it in a smart way. Um, I, I was kind of skinny fat by the end of it, you know. And, and then I, I, I finally, you know, started discovering weight training and, you know, Arnold's Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. I believe I, I, believe I checked out the copy so many times from the public library that it, it fell apart, and I, I, I believe I eventually stole it, to be honest with you. I think I stole that copy and just paid for it. Um, and, and that's really how it all began, and, and, and I, I got in better shape over, as, as the years went around, as the years uh, went by. And I learned more and more and more and, you know, wanting to be a writer at the same time, all these worlds sort of came together with me having this this transitional moment in my life where I, I, I got in much better shape and really improved my health. I saw how this changed me psychologically. I was getting a psychology degree at the time. So everything I learned in, in psychology class, I was applying to what I was going through. And, you know, I started writing a little bit about the subject, and one thing led to another, and here we are uh, about 11 years later with my, uh, I think I'm coming up on my 11th year in the uh, the health, fitness, and supplement industry. Wow. You know what? Something I thought about when when you were just talking, do you think that society does that to people? I mean, sometimes I'll I'll work with students and I'll say, you know, Unless you purposely seek something, and I, Charles and I have spoken about this too, unless you purposely seek certain foods or kinds of physical activity or mental health measures or whatever, society will encourage you to be overweight or, like you said, slothful, things like that. Do you think you are sort of a, a victim of that, or, or do you take more personal responsibility for that, or what's your, what's your perspective there? Well, it is a combination of two things. I mean, you really have to battle in this society to to be in good shape. I mean, it is it's just very, very easy and convenient to gain too much fat, to eat bad foods. I mean, the bad stuff is cheaper and faster and more convenient than the good stuff. Uh, you know, we always joke about uh, you know uh, uh, the moving sidewalk. I think one of the first times I went to uh, Vegas was for a Charles Daly seminar, and the first thing I noticed were the moving sidewalks. You didn't even have to walk. You know, we're not talking about an escalator. We're talking about a flat sidewalk that just moved. You just stood there and drank a coke and was hauled into buffets. You know, and, um, and so I do think society, modern society, you really have to battle against it. I mean, we are the oddball. Well, I mean, we are we are really the oddballs, the people who decide to battle against that, to choose the healthier foods, to to train their ass off in the gym. We're the strange ones, you know. I believe the last time I looked at you know overweight and obesity statistics, it was over fifty percent, and so you know we're, we are a minority now. But at the same time, I really have this thing about personal responsibility, and I just I don't like using anything else as an excuse. I believe that most people just squander their potential, and I, I just don't like making excuses for anything. So, yeah, all that stuff makes it really convenient for that, but I, I really believe that, that human beings are capable of so, so much, so much more than they even know they're capable of of, of, of accomplishing in, in any field, whether we're talking about physical fitness or, or anything else. And many times it is a battle against society to get that done. Yeah. Well, what about motivation? So would you consider your motivation originally the opposite sex uh, or aesthetics or, or you know, was there a growing love of physicality in some way? Uh, I think we all sort of go through an evolution when, when it comes into this. I mean, I, I mainly 
disgusted with myself. You know, I, I had a girlfriend at the time, and I, I was, you know, in, so it wasn't strictly motivated by that. And I do, I do make a lot of jo- jokes at TeamMuscle.com about some people train for powerlifting, some people train for sports, and some people train to get on stage and flex. And I, I just basically train to look good naked. Mm-hmm. That's been my running joke for like ten years. But at the same time, uh, we, when we talk about intrinsic and ex- extrinsic motivation, I, I do believe there's there's sort of an evolution that goes on. And maybe what we're originally motivated for, uh, what, what originally motivates us evolves into something else. Um, but I, I do think we, we sort of need an outside push to begin with to maybe get that momentum going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so maybe, maybe uh, there's a woman who gets a divorce and she's decided she is going to look good. She's going to drop that 20 pounds. She's going to get in shape. She's going to feel better about herself. And, you know, she's going to find her boyfriend just to to show that ex-husband up. Well, maybe that's the original mo- motivation. That's really not going to last long, though. But if you stick with it, if you stay with what we're doing, I think all of us, you know, you know all of us, I used to say if I was the last man on earth, I would probably still find a way to train just because it, it's so much a part of me now. It, it, it's so helpful in every aspect of life. I can't imagine not training. You know, we, we were look, looking around yesterday for how can I train with the gym closed on Thanksgiving? So, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's funny. There's there, sometimes it seems like there's a a line. I don't know if it's a real fine line, but between an element of dissatisfaction or an element of obsessiveness versus something that becomes unhealthy. You know, you start getting body image distortion or something like that. And I, you're an interesting case with that because I, you were uniquely sort of trained in with your education to you know, recognize motivational factors, defense mechanisms, all the kinds of stuff you're saying. And uh, I don't know, it's just interesting to see that most people you talk to, there is an element, and maybe it's not obsessiveness. You know, maybe it's just a strong passion that evolves and develops. But to the average person, you know, with roughly a third of people in America being sedentary, I mean, you know, you're talking about going from the couch to the car seat to the cubicle seat back to the couch and then to bed. I mean, with a, with almost one out of three people like that, um, like you said, you've almost got to find new sources of motivation, but it's always that underlying ember of intrinsic motivation. And, and you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. On and I've written a couple of articles about this on how very positive things can be achieved through negative psychological processes. And one of those, one of those things is a lot of, of, of what we do in, in the physical fitness field. I mean, you know, when you think about it, uh, doing something fantastic in powerlifting, uh, there, there is an element of obsessiveness to it, and there comes a point where it's almost not good for you. Uh, you know, your final week before a uh, figure competition or a bodybuilding competition, uh, it, it's not healthy almost. You know, when, when you get to, to that level of it, but such positive things can be achieved. Through through negative thoughts, uh, and you know, I, and I was having a conversation about this recently. And I, you know, I've always I've always said that one of the biggest things that helped me was was anger. Anytime I wanted to slip, when I was initially losing the weight and tr- getting into the habit of training, there was this element of anger at, at myself that that built up within me. And I always say I will help someone out with their physique transformation process if they first show me that they are pissed off. Mm-hmm. Because then I know they're really, really going to do it. But maybe it's not just anger. Maybe it is some sort of emotional 
breakdown or breakthrough that that must take place. And you know, and a lot of times that's not a completely healthy thing, but it does lead us to healthy behavior. And you know, if you have to be obsessed about something, why not uh the 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 food you are shoving into your body? Why not uh be obsessed about going to the gym? And anything can be taken to the point of being negative, but you know, here, here's an example, if I can go off on a little rant here. I really don't like being called a health nut because the alternative alternative to that is being a death nut. <laughs> and I look around a lot, of, a lot of people, you know, these people you're talking about from cubicle to car seat to couch, you know, they're watching TV, what's the average person watching TV four hours a day or something like that. I'm just like, well, okay, well, if I'm a health nut, if I'm a training nut, um, what what does that make these people? I mean, are you death nuts? Is, is there not enough stuff out there that will kill you, like different forms of cancer that's going to hit you, that may hit you without no matter how healthy your lifestyle is, without you inviting in other things that you know that could destroy you? Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. really it, it just really goes all over me. Yeah, who's the nut? Yeah, right, right. I mean, I mean, I mean you, you know, I, I made Thanksgiving dinner last night. And I actually made a healthful Thanksgiving dinner. Believe it or not, it was a it was a very healthful, almost no sugar, lower carb, high protein, packed with fiber, uh, packed with nutrients, uh, Thanksgiving dinner. And some some people may look at something like that and go, "Dude, get a life, get a life, you know, enjoy yourself a little bit." You know, I, well, first of all, I enjoyed the hell out of myself, and mm-hmm. second of all. Get a life like what? Eating potato chips and watching TV all day? That that's the life you want me to get? No thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I have mixed thoughts about Thanksgiving. Sometimes I'll just totally indulge and enjoy myself for that one day because I'll often gripe about how people make the holiday season a thirty-day, you know, grease fest. Um, but but at the same time, I, I think to, to regular people too. I always tell them if they don't have to be as obsessive as I am and make a healthy Thanksgiving dinner. But I tell them it's Thanksgiving dinner. It's one meal. It doesn't start with your kids' Halloween candy in October and extend through you know three days after <laughs> New Year's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I find it interesting around Christmas time. Every usually it talks about gaining weight, and I, I tend to over the Christmas week or two of holidays, I tend to actually lose weight. Wow. <laughs> Just avoiding, you know, all the stuff that's around. You know, it doesn't seem to be that, you know, the, the the food choices seem to be worse. So I just, you know, naturally just avoid more. <laughs> I don't know. Both of you guys. Um, kind of like one of Charles' things he always says. Um, if you want to achieve something, just look around and do the opposite. <laughs> right. It's pretty safe that you're going to be pretty damn good. Well, well I yeah, I, you know, I remember that has stuck with oh. me for so long. Uh, uh, Charles said something. He said, wrote something or said something probably a decade ago about you know looking around and doing the opposite, and that has almost become a philosophy for me. <laughs> you know, uh, my favorite example is walking around Walmart, looking what everyone else is putting in their basket, and then doing the opposite. Healthiest thing you could ever do. <laughs> By the way, I have a website for you guys: peopleofwalmart.com. You will be motivated to train. That's all I'm saying. I know Lonnie listens to like Lonnie and Fortress. You guys listen to like heavy metal music and before work. I go to peopleofwalmart.com before a workout. <laughs> you know, this is this. These are all examples. I think is I think people they start to change their behaviors over time. Your tastes, you know, like Rob's like I just don't 
want that. I don't eat it. Or, or you enjoy the hell out of a, a much healthier meal. I think after a while, it the habits really kick in, and you really don't crave um, the g- super greasy, super sugary kinds of stuff that people with a quote-unquote life would tell you you should enjoy. You know, you actually don't enjoy them that much. It's really not that hard after a while to not do those things, you know. You know, if you look at the psychology of, of being overweight and having true problems, and you don't even have to be overweight to have a problem with food. I mean, there are people out there who are training their ass off, you know, twice a day, but mainly what they're doing is trying to counterbalance their their true addictions, their sugar addictions and their problems with, with, with carbs and things like that. And uh, so I, I don't really think you have to be, I don't know, I, I don't think you have to be um, obsessive necessarily. But, uh, but yeah, there, there are a lot of people out there who are really, everything they do in the gym is to balance out their diet. And that's why I, I'm just so big on nutrition these last few years and the psychology behind it. And really this last year or so, I've really been focusing a lot on food addictions and what certain combinations of uh you know trans fats and high fructose corn syrup and sodium can can do i believe i believe uh Lonnie I believe in some of the the lab studies that this stuff has been shown to be almost as addictive as crack <laughs> like literally it comes in second place behind crack when it comes to addiction and then you know this is basically the combination they're putting in kid cereals and I've just become really passionate about that about that here lately yeah, yeah. there was a new study it was on um Sugar alone and fat alone are both, you know, they came out okay, but when you mix the two, it, it was right up there with, with crack cocaine. Yeah, um, that's, exa- that's exactly the study. For some reason, sugar by itself is okay. Yeah. I I think a lot of that, I haven't seen uh, that particular study, and I know there's a lot of debate that goes on about those kinds of things. And, and Chris, I think you and I were talking the other day about how you got to appreciate on some level that, grain-based food supply is the only way you're going to feed everybody on this earth. You know, 99.9% of the people on the earth, we have to have agriculture, and most of that's grain for people to survive and stuff. But we're just lucky that over a period of time, you can habituate yourself away from that. But you're right, it is creepy that people are sort of presented that from birth. Uh, I work with some athletes at the university who literally, since they were toddlers, they've lived at McDonald's, they've lived on fast food, and they cannot get their head around the idea that there are there are other food um, sources out there. You know, there are other ways to eat um, because that's just what you do. That when you're hungry, you go there and eat, and it's just uh, it's just crazy. You know, it's just crazy. I think we're socialized to that extent, and, and and you know, I'll give you an example. I was at a I was parked somewhere the other day, and and there was there was a fast food restaurant right beside of me in in the parking lot and it was not even lunchtime it was like maybe two or three o'clock in the afternoon and i just sat there for a minute and watched the drive-through there were never fewer than like 10 cars waiting in line and it never stopped and i think a lot of times we kind of get in our own little bubble in the strength sports community and we we forget that regular people are out there you know, consuming this stuff and, and thinking that, well, that's just what you do. 
when it's time for lunch. That's simply what you do. We, we, we're so, you know, especially being on the internet and participating in like bodybuilding forums and things like that, we, we kind of assume everyone is walking around with the Tupperware containers and the protein shakes and, and, and things like that. And it, you almost have to get out into the real world, into the gyms, into the restaurants and kind of look around and go, oh, Okay, this is why it's fifty something percent of the population is either either overweight or obese. Yeah. Well, that brings up a point that I wanted to make earlier about just the whole idea of <clears throat> it, it kind of comes down to a lot of just ignorance. Um, I mean, people, I think, generally speaking, know um, to a degree, you know, what's good and what's bad, but but they don't know the extent of it. And I mean, to make it an example, even like something like just you know, pop soda pop. Um, you know, even talking with Lonnie a few years ago, him and I were talking about this, and it kind of, you know, of course I know that's not good for you, but I mean, you know, that the extent that he was describing just, you know, how, how damaging it could be, I mean, even for somebody like me, it was just that, you know, that little extra bit of information was just just enough to kind of really, you know, curb even, you know, a semblance of my, my you know, propensity to drinking pop even, you know, semi-regularly. Mm-hmm. I think I have to jump in here before I get a ton, a ton of hate mail. I can see it already coming <laughs> from my Facebook followers that, uh, and, and my food porn. Um, I think I think it's also healthy to clarify that um, I think the main thing is just having a healthy relationship with food. And I am a firm believer that you know there is, aside from the high fructose corn syrup and say uh, trans fat, there is no really, uh, I guess, bad food. Um, it's only food for your goals. And uh, being a, a relatively large mammal, I mean, yes, I do. You know, I eat a ton of food, and it's not all what some people would claim, you know, so-called clean. You know, I have simpler carbohydrates. I, I load them up with, say, cheese and this and that. But, I mean, it's because I am 270 pounds and I'm deadlifting 725 plus and, you know, there's a need there. It's for a reason. It's not for pure enjoyment. You know? Yeah, but you're I mean, making a conscientious decision to do that with, with, yeah, with you know, a certain yeah, degree of knowledge behind it. me, I'm using it as a reason, but I do love all the, I get, if, if you guys have a chance, you should check it out. And uh, I get all these people, oh, my God, you're killing yourself. It's like, well, I'm doing something right here, you know. I, I am, I do have like a 1,700 and something total. <laughs> I'm walking around pretty healthy. Well, there is a requirement. Obviously, there's a requirement for calorie intake, and that's it's true. I mean, if if you get too far into this bubble, like Chris is talking about, you're literally, you know, you're carrying around a gallon jug of water, and you're eating four or five hundred grams of protein a day, or something. I think a lot of these thin guys, and Rob, you and I have talked about this for a decade or more. They've got to learn to eat. How many guys have you blown past in strength and size because you ate? You've got to eat. So on that level, I'm I'm totally agreeing with you, Phil. Phil. Uh, you you can't just eat hundreds of grams of protein. I always use the the bricklayer analogy. You know, you can't just have truckloads of bricks brought in and expect them to synthesize themselves. You need energy in the bricklayer's equipment. And uh, I mean, I need the calories, and there are people out there that need the calories. I mean, still, you won't see me touch. Uh, sugared soda—it's that's not good for anybody's goals, you know. I mean, it's 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 realizing and having a, a brick foundation on good foods, and then add on for what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, right. Know. I think that's fascinating. Well, that's what I always you say, young guys. Power lifter, like, everything you're supposed to eat, and then eat a few more things that you're probably not supposed to. 
but I mean, again, that's towards the you know the the goal of just you know size and strength at a certain point yeah. in you know an athlete's development. I, I tell you uh, one thing that I worry about, Phil, and and not aiming this at you, but something that I, I've just seen in 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 my decade in this. And I see it in terms of like bulking diets and mass diets is when people choose a lot of their food, not like you, but they're choosing like a lot of bad, bad foods, then they're getting those really bad combinations of uh, fat, sugar, sodium, which seems to trigger this, this literal addiction. And so, yeah, they go on a mass phase. They want to get six, seven thousand calories, however much they're getting per day. But then the addiction kicks in and they can't kick it. They become the guy that's always 20 or 30 pounds overweight. I mean, yeah. they're the guy that has the big gut year around. I'm like, man, you're training your ass off in the gym. Shouldn't the belly be gone after three years? Hey, you know what? Uh, and, 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 I, and I think they're, 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 you know, they're, they're smart guys. They're tough guys. I really think, I really think it's coming down to food addictions, and that's why I'm really against the typical mass diet, of the dirty bulk. Because I don't see people, it's a fine idea on paper, but I don't see a whole lot of people, I see a lot of people really ruining their health, and they can never stop the dirty bulk. Is the oh, problem. yeah, I mean, a classic example of that was when Dave Tate went on, you know, first started working with Berardi, and he actually had physical, you know, withdrawal symptoms. He actually, you know, yeah, he got detoxified. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, yeah, of course, I totally agree. What I'm saying is, I mean, a lot of people get way too upset. You'll see a kid walking around at, you know, 105 pounds dripping wet and wondering why he can't gain weight. And it's because, you know, he just uh, he won't eat. Yeah. And you know what? Let me, let me disturb everybody here with a little a study. Last year, there was a study at the Mayo Clinic. Now, I understand behavior is a huge part of this and the addiction idea and everything. But listen to this. They took rats or rodents. They fed them a typical, you know, highly refined, sugary, fatty diet. And now this is where it gets weird. They took another group of rats that were lean and they were on, I don't know, regular rat chow, let's say. And after the fast food rats, the refined diet rats, became very obese, they switched the bacteria in their intestines with the healthy rats. Okay, now this obviously you're not going to do with humans. And the bacteria and all the microflora in their uh, intestines, when they switched them, the lean rats became fat. Now, holy crap, think about that. So you've got the behavioral thing working against you, but you've also literally encouraged all the bacterial colonies in your intestines to sort of encourage obesity to the point that you can actually take those bad, if you will, bacteria out of the fat rats, you put it in the lean rats, and they become fat. It's just crazy. So I guess what I'm pointing out here is it takes time, not just to change a behavior, you know, with – and people, their behaviors change at different uh, steps. Some people like small, you know, changes that they can uh, maintain. Some people have to go cold turkey, if you will. But to think that there are physical manifestations that t may take weeks or months to change, like the bacteria in your gut, uh, before you can turn things around – it makes the whole thing almost like a rehab, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, you know, the rehab idea makes, makes perfect sense, and that's all. That's something I've always said about my velocity diet. You know, someone will come in and go, oh, my gosh, it's lower calories and it's protein shakes and workout drinks all the time and only one solid meal a week. You can't live like that. And I'm like, exactly. It's 28 days long. It's rehab. Get yeah. in there, kick its ass, and, and be done with it. 
And I, I don't know, I find, I, you know, I jump back and forth a lot between the cold turkey idea and the small steps idea. Mm-hmm. Because the small steps idea, it makes perfect sense on paper. It's it's absolutely sensible. First, stop drinking Coke, step one. You know, step right. two, go for a walk every day. or you know. But there's so many people that if they're not seeing two or three pounds of weight loss a week, then those small steps, they're, it's like they're too slow. So I, I, I think it probably comes down to personality type. Some people are going to do better with small steps, and some people are going to need something like my velocity diet, which is just absolutely, you know, food and behavioral rehab, curl up in a ball and shiver, you know, kind of stuff to just smash those habits. And you know, Chris, if you ever want, I have a, a growing list of uh, clinical trials of research papers about the effectiveness of high-protein, liquid shake kinds of diets to kick off, uh, you know, basically a healthier weight loss lifestyle. And so a lot of the stuff that you've been saying, I find more and more. In fact, even right now on the, on the Iron Radio website, on the, one of the links there, the Experiments versus Experience link, I'm reading from a poster when I was in Thailand that was specifically about that. It was yet another paper that I've seen that these sort of shake-based kickoffs um, mm-hmm. are effective. You know, it's like getting a running start the way, I, the way I look at it. I mean, if you can lose 15 or 20 pounds while retaining as much uh, lean body mass as humanly possible in about a four-week period. Go for it. I mean, that, that's it's hugely motivational from, a, from just from a psychological point of view. It's it's so motivational, and, um, and and what I find, and I just gathered this from my studies of psychology and from my you know my experience as a writer and editor in the in the fitness field and just being in gyms all the time, is it's a it seems to be about 28 days, 28 days of cold turkey to break a habit or to set a new habit uh, into stone. Mm-hmm. I just think it'd be very interesting to also see how long it took to change, you know, the bacterial colonies of, of your gut, just to throw that in. Because I, I wonder if there's a relationship there, and I've just been thinking about the mind, and there's actually a lot of physiological coolness going on. Yeah, well, I know there's metabolic changes, too. That would be cool. Maybe we'll write a book one day, Chris. <laughs> okay, okay, listen. I, I want to move on to the topic of the day. Should we play the bumper, or are we just going to... Well, anyway, I just wanted to add one more thing. I mean, from somebody who's been there, I mean, I was, as you guys know, I mean, pretty much morbidly obese at over 300 pounds, not Mm -hmm. training. And, I mean, I think a lot of it boils down to, yes, the maturity side, I mean, the the mental side, but then I think it's it's a maturity. And there's so much emotional ties to food in our culture that people give, wrongly give food power. I mean, it's an inanimate object. And I'm, I'm not one that believes in, in cravings. I mean, I think they're, sure, there's some chemical things going on there, but really, are they more powerful than you? I mean, are you willing to to let food run you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't see it, and I think it's the level of maturity you have to reach. I mean, that's what people are amazed at me. Sure, I'm sitting there loading my face up. I'm trying to hit 280, but then the next point, I can turn around and go flat-out low-carb, like 10 grams a day, and not have a problem with it. Let me and, go in a quick I mean, response. And people are like, what the hell? And they're trying to, here, just eat a cookie. And it's like, no, not right now. It doesn't fit my goal. You may be one of the lucky ones, though, Phil. I mean, if, when you look at nutrigenetics, right, some people diet fairly well. They don't lose leptin levels and thyroid levels like other people. 
and yeah. and therefore they don't have quite the level of hunger and you know cravings and stuff like that. I, when I was in Thailand, I was even seeing that genetic-wise, some people deal with alcohol much more effectively than others. So yeah. you know, just keep in mind that there are differences in the population. And you might be one of the lucky ones, but I totally understand what you're saying, too. Again, we're back to the physical genetic versus the psychological side of things, you know. In short, there needs to be more work done, and you're the man for the job. <laughs> all right. All right. Can you play the bumper? Today's topic, um, for those of you who haven't heard it yet, is what's the state of Internet bodybuilding? And I really want to start this with Chris for obvious reason as someone who's, uh, like I said, a mainstay uh, in that environment. And I want to start off with the question to Chris, which is sum up, if you can, um, bodybuilding on the Internet in just a, a word or two. Well, we're all 3% body fat in, in 290. That's basically internet bodybuilding, isn't it? <laughs> it would seem to be. And we know everything. <laughs> no, um, you know, it's really interesting. I, I've always been, I, I always like the, the, what I think of as the, the old school way of bodybuilding and the way bodybuilding culture came up around, you know, like the Venice Beach era in the 1970s and things like that. I mean, I wasn't part of that. I'm, I'm a little young for that. But I've, I always sort of return to that. And you, you see these old black and white photos of, of Arnold and these guys in the gym, and they're training alongside power lifters, and they're all talking to each other. And they're all just, hey, if you tried this, you should try this, and hold your hand like this. No university studies, uh, no having to prove it or back it up with, with, with anything. Just, hey, try this. It worked for me. And then they try it, and things go along, and it's sort of sort of like a capitalistic uh, way of figuring out what works because if it doesn't work, it gets dumped to the side. It's like a free market idea. It gets dumped to the side really quickly, and only the things that really work are are kept with kept in there. And um, you compare that into to today, where we have a whole lot more information. I mean, we are just overloaded with information. We're not talking to the people in the gym the guys who are more muscular than us or have recently lost 20 pounds of fat or anything. Instead, we're getting on the Internet and we're looking it up. So more information than ever, um, probably more crap than ever. It's the only bad part of that. Yeah, not only is everybody an expert, but there's financial interests that affect a lot of the good advice. Like you said, if you walk into a gym, and that's sort of how I started too, a middle-aged guy who was sort of a mentor – you know, and said, you lift like this. Oh, no, you're making a mistake there, mister. You know, stuff like that. And instead, people go to people who are not really their mentor. They're someone who wants the cash in their pocket. And everybody's got a proprietary system, and this is my sort of gripe. But, yeah, then the poor guys are left, you know, the young kids, they don't have basic barbell skills like, you know, Charles and I were talking about recently or, you know, basic uh, dieting skills and stuff like that because they're presented – too much prepackaged, just don't think about it sorts of sorts of things, supplements and meal plans and books and everything else, and too many choices might as well be no choices at all because they're just so damn overwhelmed. I, I think we see that a lot. You know, at, at teammuscle.com, we put out uh, four or five 
articles a week, and several of those are, you know, articles about training or, or, or whatever. And, you know, every once in a while we'll publish kind of a kind of an off-topic thing, sort of just an, an editorial. And uh, you'll, you'll get comments in there like, well, I don't see the purpose of this. We could have gotten another training program in here. It's like we've been on the Internet like 11 years. There, you'd, you'd never need another training program in the world, you know, in your entire life. Yeah. Is what's already out there. You could not get through all the training programs that we've already published by, by uh, you know, the, the best strength coaches and bodybuilding prep guys and powerlifters in, in the industry. Um, but people are always looking for that, you know, for, for the for the next big thing. And I understand that. And there are ne- there are things that are coming along that are that are better. I mean, we're learning more and more and more. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, it's sort of strange. I I forums are where where it gets difficult i think forums is, is, is where it really because it's like you said you're getting advice from people someone are out there they've been they get on a forum they start spewing advice uh t- you know really attacking other people for how they're training really giving their opinions and you know they finally post a, a photo of themselves and you're like dude i'm already 30 pounds bigger than you and you were giving me shit you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know well, I, the problem I, with the internet is it gives a voice to everybody and there's no discrimination and um, largely no kind of validation of who you know where this is coming from, you know. So, like you say, impressionable people that don't yet have developed any sort of filter to kind of even slightly work through this stuff are, like you say, just been being bombarded by information from everybody, from people who are experts and actually do know what they're talking about to not. But like I say, they don't have that filter to kind of start seeing, you know, what might be and what might not be good advice. So it just gets perpetuated. Well, right. and, and it gets scary a lot of times because, you know, people don't tell the entire story a lot of times when, when, when they're giving this advice and they're saying, you know, what you're doing is crap. You need to eat this and you need to train like this. And then they, they kind of fail to mention that they're on two grams a week. And so maybe that might not work for the 17-year-old kid you're telling to eat that much. You know, <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I really... I know it's a it's a fantastic thing with all of the the free information that's available, but it requires more and more uh, critical thinking on the part of the the user. Well, and to even further that, you get people like you said, whether they're two grammars, uh, they're pounding gas or something like that, or or they're financially motivated or whatever. Here's the problem to me is that everybody hides behind sort of a, an anonymity on these threads. And everybody's an expert. And all I ask is this. Here's my plea to the internet, you know, uh, health and fitness and bodybuilding community. If you're going to say something that's part of your opinion or if it's theoretical, then damn it, say this is theoretical. I had a nice discussion with Tim Patterson over the summer, and he's like, Lonnie, you know, I'm totally fine with you saying, listen, I'm acting as a theoretical physiologist here. I've got the background. I'm going to make some guesses. And you can run with this if you want, but it's not guaranteed. But that's not how stuff gets presented. Stuff is presented as fact when it's sort of at the hypothesis stage. You know, it might be a good guess. might be an educated guess. But people don't come clean and say that. So always remember, you know, you have to state what you speculate versus what you can demonstrate. And it's one of the same rules that are used in science. So if it's going to be speculation, say it. Don't present it like it was uh, canon. And you know, well, one of the one of the pieces of advice I find myself giving over and over again to these people who get on the internet and are, and are overwhelmed by all the, all the programs 
is I asked them, how long are you going to be doing this? And hopefully it makes most of them realize that, you know, this thing that we do, whatever field, whatever particular area we like the most in, in this lifting weights thing and this keeping in good condition thing, uh, wh- how long do you plan on doing it? Hopefully it's, it's for, makes them realize this is a lifetime thing. And sometimes you just have to, you just have to jump in. You have to jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down. You know, it's like, don't get on there and research for three months whether escalating density training is the proper thing for you. Just go to the damn gym and do EDT. You will know in a few weeks whether it's for you, and then you can go try something else, and then you can go try something else. <laughs> right, right. I mentioned uh, nutrigenetics, but the same thing is going to apply to training, too, is essentially what makes coaches valuable, uh, like Charles, or uh, or working with a legitimate nutrition person, is there are differences. People are different. Genetics are the reason that everything doesn't work for everyone else. Now, there are some systems, I think, that have broader applicability than others, whether it's dietary systems or training systems. But that's important to note. Like you said, go try it. If if the risk-to-benefit ratio is good, give yourself a realistic amount of time, generally several weeks, and dedicate yourself to something and see if your genes work with that sort of environment that you're applying to them. Because everybody's different in how much they can tolerate intensity, duration, uh, carbs versus fats, you know, all that kind of stuff. There are genetic differences. Appreciate that. Go give it a try. And you can learn so much almost instantly in one day or a couple of weeks or a couple of months with a dietary approach or a training approach. You know, Dan, uh, Coach Dan John is one of the world's best at this. He'll just get a, a new idea or be presented with a new idea and he'll just do it and then he'll know and then he's then he's finished so i, I actually heard something the other day uh it was about uh you should eat about let's see what was it, a pound of vegetables for every 50 pounds of body weight that you have and i thought that idea was kind of unrealistic and i thought it was a really neat idea but it worked well on paper really wouldn't work in real life so i just said you know screw it I'm going to eat four pounds of vegetables on Wednesday. And I tried it all day long. I, I tried to, and You know what? I learned so much in that one-day period. First, I learned that I cannot get four pounds of vegetables in one day, even blending broccoli directly into protein shakes. I only got about three pounds. But you know what? I learned that I can get a whole lot more in. I learned some interesting ways of preparing vegetables. Uh, I, I learned a lot of interesting things in the bathroom the next day. So, you know, it's one day, one day, and then you'll know. I could have got on there. This was uh, Dr. Joseph Mercola is one of his ideas. And if you know Dr. Mercola, he's 50% really cool and 50%, what the hell did he just say? You know, that kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know what, I just went and I tried it. I went and I, I tried it, and in one day I knew. Instead of getting on the Internet and arguing about it, which turns into F you, well, yeah, well, F you, and I think this, and show me the studies, and shut up, go do it. And then, yeah. then you'll know. I, I think the important thing when, when, when guys are on the internet and they're looking at this stuff and they're presented with all this stuff as if it were canon, as if it were fact, keep in mind too that the reason that we wait to give nutrition recommendations, and the same thing's true with training, is you have to wait for a consensus in the literature. More studies that say something, you know, gives more and more credence to an idea or a hypothesis. So 
the latest study that comes out, whether it's nutrition or training, you don't just jump on that as the end-all, be-all. You wait for many studies, and again, we're back to the genetic idea. You have a very, very unique genetic makeup as a human being compared to everybody else. See how the stuff works for you. If, and honestly, you can cut through a whole lot of uh, tangents and misguided uh, research and stuff like that by talking to the right person. And that's why you seek out something like a coach or uh, a qualified nutritionist who has a background in your sport and things like that because they can cut through the nonsense and present ideas and summarize this overload of information. So, Chris, um, I kind of have an idea of it from, from being around, but uh, how many people do you think actually do put, say, a program or diet to work and do the program? Say a four-week program on the Internet. How many people yeah, have- you know that's that's always really really tough because everyone, every you know, like like you know like Lonnie said, every you know everyone is an expert on the internet. So what they do is they they modify the actual. You know, I tried that and it didn't work for me. And yeah. they what they what they're not saying is well at the same time this is this is the way I ate over that period of time and this and of course they didn't have. You know that, so I used the Smith machine instead of using this. And you know, well, they didn't have this. I didn't. I just did the leg curl instead of deadlifting. But other than that, I did it exactly, except it said four <laughs> days a week, and I went twice. But they kind of don't put all that in there. Eight week program, and it didn't show the results that it's supposed to. You, you right. know, that's the one you see a lot. I mean, you know, you guys put out a, a, a training program, and then the next week or two weeks later, another one comes out, and people drop ship and go to the next one and say the other one didn't work. After they've done it right, and they're not really no. giving it the full amount of time. But, you know, here's something, Phil, that I, I, I come back to over and over again when it comes to training programs is, to me, I, I'm really starting. Uh, yes, there's some fantastic, great, superior training ideas out there, but to me it just comes down to the individual effort that the, the guy is putting oh. out. And I, I always give the example of I saw two guys on a, uh, a, a hammer curl machine. And one guy was talking about the latest movie that, that he had seen, and he was, you know, eight reps, nine reps, still talking, still going. Hit, hits like ten reps, and he, he never stopped talking the entire time. The last rep looked just as easy as the first rep. And then his buddy's over there beside of him about to shit his pants, you know, on rep six, and pauses a second and cranks out another one, and his face is red, and sweat is pouring off the guy, and by the time he gets 10, he's he's in another zone. He can't hear or see anything else in the gym because he has taken himself to his special place yeah. in order to get that last rep. Now, both guys are on the same program. It's printed out and laying on the floor in front of them. Which guy is going to get better results? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, a lot of times, so when the people, oh, I did the program, I just kind of wonder. You know, like with my velocity dot ads, the people go, you know, the training program is really not hard enough. And I said, well, let me take you to the gym, and I'll put you through it. And amazingly, they were about to throw up halfway through when I stood there and watched them and made sure they kept their rest periods and tempos in mind. But yet, when they did it on their own, it wasn't difficult enough. Well, that's why I always say that, you know, in, with all due respect to what you know Lonnie said about, um, you know, people's genetic makeups, you know, uh, adapting to do different things better or worse. Um, obviously, that's very much true. But I've always said as well, basically what you're saying is like, to lesser or greater degrees, any program will work for you depending on how much you believe in it and how much you work the program. Um, and, of course, again, as to lesser or greater degrees, but, you know. Yeah. Yep. 
And you know what? I mean, you have to work the program. You can't just like you say. You have two guys there that are doing the same program. But I mean, you know, if if it's what you're putting into it, it's how much you believe in what you're doing. Right. You have to believe in what you're doing and work the program. I just thought of a movie quote. There was a. You ever see that old flick, Secondhand Lions? It's it's a it's it's an interesting book. There's a a, a movie, and there's a quote in there where I, I think Robert Duvall's character says something about, you know, it's not whether or not something is necessarily true it's just that you believe in stuff that's worth believing in so if you really believe in something uh it, it makes all the difference in the world now we're back to the psychology thing but um listen i want to i want to steer things back on track just a little and sort of segue but we're talking about what what guys are doing in the gym and how people believe and get results versus people who just go through the motions Stuff like that, Chris. I have a question for you, and you know, Fortress, you'd be a great one for this too. Where do you see the changes? I think in internet bodybuilding over the last five or ten years, do you see an increasing disjoint between internet bodybuilding and what actually you see in the gym, or do you see trends, or or what's happening with the evolution of uh, electronic bodybuilding, if you will? I think Fortress it's well for me. I don't want to interrupt, but um, Chris's thought maybe, but I see it as just um, too much information, too much, um, too many younger trainers, um, more elementary trainers who are <clears throat> looking at too much, too much of the detail of things without, like we're all talking about for the last half an hour, just going and doing, you know, taking the big elements that are, you know, quote unquote tried and true. Um, if I could say that, and just going and doing it, um, like you say, everybody wants to research everything and nitpick for hours on the you know the best way to train their biceps, um, and I, I think that's kind of destroying the you know the, the essence of of just getting in there, lifting big, eating big, and, and getting to that point. Yeah, I, I, I definitely see that see that happening as well. I, I do think I mean there's there's some really great stuff on the internet. Uh, that I think can help people a great deal. You know, I, I just always think, well, you know, when I was kind of coming up in this and I was kind of a, a, a late bloomer being the, the non-athletic kid, I, I was probably in my, you know, 22, 23 years old before I really stepped into a weight room by myself without, you know, like a tobacco-chewing coach yelling at me, making me do it. So I was kind of a late bloomer w w when, it, when it came to all this. But uh, I just wish that kind of information would have been available. And even though there's a, a whole lot of it and a lot of it is bunk, you know, I, I think, like, what if what if T-Muscle existed back then? How, how much further along would I be than I am now? How much less injured would I be, <laughs> you know, and, and, and things like that. So I, I think it is a it is a fine balance. And I do think I do think things are actually getting a little bit better. I mean, some of the projects we have going at, at, at T-Muscle are just – really really cool and and really really amazing and i really think it's going to make a difference in in, in how people are are training in the gyms and I, I always think it's sort of funny i train in gyms all around the country and I, I love it when i see someone doing something i can watch them for just like in between sets for like a minute or so and i can tell they've read a cosgrove article or they've read edt or you know <laughs> and you can tell what program they're on and that's that. At the very least, that is so much better than the ones who are wandering around. You know, it's like they're wonder whatever machine they bump into, they sit down and they use it. You oh know, my and God! I'm yeah, I'm glad these people. programs are available because you know programs 
programs get dissed a lot, but programs make you do things you may not have done instinctively. And when I say instinctively, I'm referring to like the beginner who will instinctively do the easiest stuff. Right. So right. I, I, I think these programs are out there and they are free, and that's a really positive thing. And we kind of have to take the good with the bad when it comes to the Internet and bodybuilding. I absolutely agree with everything you say. I just think there's a point where people just have to stop thinking and start doing, you know. Yeah, I mean, people definitely. overthink things, um, yeah, I find. I'm at one point, but... The point of paralysis, um, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a point where you just got to stop thinking about it and get, and I, I hate to say this, but you just got to get a little barbaric and you just got to do it, you know. Oh, you know, I more of an animal. Leave the intellect behind and just go, you know, and just get the let, let out. Barbarism is what you're all about, buddy. All right. So well, that's a lot, man. I mean, we've covered some of the, the good parts, the bad parts, the changes. Are there any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Well, i got a few questions here from people. Oh. Um, John from Buffalo. As a bodybuilder, I'm wondering what supplements Chris and Dr. Lowry take and how they relate to their bodybuilding goals. Man, there, you know, there's so much we could talk about in that area. One of the main things that I do, just as general supplement questions, I have come to sort of a uh, epiphany over the last few years that health supplements are bodybuilding supplements because I just don't believe your body's going to perform at its best if it is lacking in certain basic things or if we can sort of really soup up your health. So my foundational supplements are um, fish oil, uh, I use, use flame out, um, uh, resveratrol, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong because I'm just an editor and read this stuff all the time, but uh, resveratrol, uh, a superfood type supplement, the one I take is actually called superfood because, you know, you get something like 10 or 12 servings of, of vegetables and a little scoop the size of your thumb. I think that's an amazing thing. So, you know, you take care of the basics like that. Those are bodybuilding supplements. I mean, we can get fancy and start talking about uh, the peri-workout nutrition, which is undeniably where it's at when it comes to building slabs and slabs of muscle. I truly, truly believe that. But let's take care of the basics first. Before you're buying something sort of experimental or crazy, take care of those basics first. And anyone who says they can't afford, you know, $60, $70, $80 a month in fish oil and superfood type supplements. I, I just I just ask you to look at your life and, and figure out what, what you can do without because we're we're talking about adding potentially years to your life and life to your years by taking care of these foundational health supplements. And if you if you're dead you're not gonna look very good and be very strong. So it's true. You don't get much booty either when you're dead is what I've figured <laughs> yeah. out. So I'm all for the life <laughs> extension. <laughs> You know, we were just asked recently, uh, Chris, I don't know if you sent that or – but somebody sent around an email through, through uh, T-Muscle about what are the five foods and supplements that you must have. And I thought, oh, Christ. You know, I had to immediately go down sort of must-have stuff. But on the supplement side of things, I'm going to agree with the fish oil thing, getting a good EPA, DHA supplement because you're in essence replacing a relevant uh, – relative deficiency you're not you're not going to be presented omega-3 fats in the western diet to any significant degree so fish oils would be one i like a good sweetened vanilla sort of whey casein blend that kind of stuff is 
versatile as opposed to strongly flavored proteins of any one kind. Now, somebody might say, well, we already eat plenty of protein in the States. Yeah, we do, but they're protein foods that also happen to have other stuff in them. Um, now, don't get me wrong. There's cottage cheese and egg whites and all that kind of staple stuff, too, but we're talking supplements. So uh, I, I think a, a big advantage of protein powders or bars is also that they don't spoil. They're relatively portable. You can carry them around with you, and that's just huge because most proteins just will not last more than about four hours uh, before they're starting to spoil. So I, I think fish oils, a good quality protein, are a big one, and people, most people know. I mean there's huge consensus in the literature for stuff like creatine and stuff like that. Chris pointed out phytochemicals. Um, I'll either get those through fruit or uh, – or something like a, a superfood type supplement. So that's. that's pretty uh, I want to throw out one more here, if I can. Um, vitamin D. Vitamin yeah. D more and more. Instead of just talking about it a whole lot, I would just direct people to tmuscle.com. Put vitamin D and my name in the search engine, and you'll find a huge article I wrote about it. And I just, I mean, it, it's the, every once in a while a supplement comes along that if, if you put your mama and your kid on it, it's important. And that's what I did with uh, vitamin D. So you have to check that out. Yeah. You know what? There you are, again, replacing a relative deficiency because it looks like the RDA for vitamin D, which is 400 I use a day, is not enough. Even 1,000 doesn't seem to be enough to raise blood levels. And if you look at the literature, and I just did, two to 4,000 units of vitamin D a day for one to two months to get your blood levels back up. And your blood levels do fall between the end of summer and this time of year. So – yeah, right on with that one. Good. Um, Josh and Sierra Vista, um, I know Josh, he, just to give you a little background, he, he's a fairly large mammal. But um, he's wanting to know his uh, the take on uh, the amount of omega-3s needed for people of various sizes to get the best benefits. Does it, does it vary for size of person? That's a Lonnie Lowry question right there. Well, I could touch on that. Uh, I'll tell you what. I have spoken to physicians, and in fact, every physician I know uses omega-3s. Um, I, I'm not a physician, but I do too. I think everybody on this podcast does. And I heard one guy back over the summer say, you know, the problem with fish oils is people don't take enough. They take like one or two pills, and they, people have to realize that EPA and DHA are the active ingredients in fish oils. They're more potent than linolenic acid, which is the plant omega-3, uh, and it looks like to me, I mean, although you could dose it relative to body mass, uh, you know, per pound or per kg or something, it's generally you'll start to see effects between half a gram and one gram of EPA and DHA combined daily, and people go up to about three grams or so. I, I'm not convinced that going way over three grams, now we're talking about of EPA plus DHA, more than 3,000 milligrams of those two combined is really going to help much. Because if you look at the literature, a lot of it's about omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. And if you eat fats in America at all, you're probably getting a reasonable amount of omega-6. And what we are not presented is omega-3. So if I had to put a gross number on that, and again, people go check, read up on it yourself, talk to your doctor. But generally between 1,000 and 3,000 milligrams of EPA plus DHA will cause definite physiological changes. Um, For myself, I mean, I know that... I've went as high as 30 grams a day, and, you know, I I see good benefit at, like, not 30 grams, sorry, 31-gram pills, so not 30 grams of EPA, DHA. You know, in between 15 and 20 of them little things, and I feel pretty good. But, 
you might try Dan John's new uh, his approach was pretty comical, but uh, he said just keep adding on until you get diarrhea and then back off a little bit, and you're there. <laughs> you know that's that's actually not a bad philosophy. I mean, I've heard of a lot of I've heard of uh, Charles Poliquin using this in a lot of different uh, for a lot a lot of his supplement uh, protocols is. You know, how much do I take? Well, take enough where, you know, you, you feel some sort of bad effect and then back off one tablet and there's your cool. dosage for the rest of the time. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, all right, well, I'm not going to... Lonnie just, Lonnie just passed out. I'm not going to condone that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's one approach, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, think about, like, leucine. I mean, I, I believe, uh, you know, leucine, you can kind of do that way because, I mean, uh, pounding back a lot of leucine is is showing some really amazing, you know, physiological effects for the, the hypertrophy-minded person. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you can get too much, and and yeah. I, I think it does sort of have a, you know, a, a negative effect in that in that, in that uh, area. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, you go with uh, – However much you can, and then you back off a little bit if it becomes too much. And I, I think it can work with some things, but I, maybe not the best approach for everything. That's the key, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's like with overtraining. This is this is really you know you can almost uh, I used to, I, I did this uh, audio blog a couple of years ago called Overfill Your Bathtub, and the idea was most people are scared to death of overtraining and they're probably nowhere near it. I bet Rob could jump in on this one. Most people are nowhere near a true physiological state of overtraining, but they, they think they are. So what you have to do is overfill your bathtub. You have to overtrain, yeah. purposely try to overtrain. And then once you overtrain, then you're like, okay, now I know where I'm at. Yeah. Now I know what overtraining is like, and now I can be one step under that where I can train my ass off and still progress without actually hitting you know, over over training, but everyone, but you have to do it before you know where your marker is. Well, I think that's why another good example of the internet bodybuilding scene. You know, overtraining was what three years ago or so. It was a big topic, and everybody got frightenedly scared of it. Oh, I'm overtraining! You heard it every day, and mm-hmm. uh, how many people actually were? But I don't want to dismiss that either. I've experienced overtraining syndrome. You train at a maximal intensity five, six days a week. It, well, and again, my head may not be right with that, but, but you can drive yourself into almost mono-like symptoms that could take weeks to recover. So you do have to, like Chris, Chris says, push the envelope, but don't tear the envelope to pieces and get yourself hospitalized or something. <laughs> yeah, that's, no, that's totally true. Danielle Reed in Texas, um, what's the fastest, safest way to shed a few pounds? Do you have any tips for uh, doing so during the holidays? Would you recommend the velocity diet for someone who has about 10 pounds to lose? Is there a less extreme variation of the velocity diet that can can help someone lose those last few pounds? Oh my God! <laughs> well, you know, for, for those familiar with, with with the velocity diet, it is basically a one of these high protein liquid diets. You get one solid meal a week. You do take care of your post workout training with a you know a, a carby amino fill drink, and uh, it was you know I originally created that diet because I was really I had hit a wall. And I had, I couldn't, I couldn't, I did not, I was not able to just get that, you know, ripped abs. That's R-I-P-T-A-B-Z for the internet folk. Uh, I could not get that lean, lean state that I, that I always wanted. So I, and I only had about uh, uh, 15, 16 pounds to lose. So I developed the velocity diet to basically do it. And people say, well, am I, am I in too good a shape for the velocity diet? And I was like, well, no, that's who I invented it for. 
or people who are already doing this, who are already at like 10, 12% body fat and just want to get in the most ridiculously lean, shredded, uh, buffed state as they, as they possibly can in the shortest amount of time possible while at the same time maybe giving, getting rid of a lot of bad food related behaviors. Um, so it is good for someone who wants to lose only 10 or 15 pounds. Um, and I actually don't recommend it for people who have 70, 80 pounds to lose because they're, they're, you know, there's way too much, there are too many other issues there. But as far as an easier version of, of the velocity diet, I, you know, I really think, um, something I've had a lot of success with over the years is starting every day with a good protein shake and I'll put like a superfood type supplement in it and things like that. And then I will end the day with a low carb protein shake. Uh, and that for me, I can like instantly lean up a little bit and maybe you gain five or six pounds over the holidays. I can instantly drop that just by doing it. There's something about this last meal of the day. Most people blow it their last meal of the day, and I think it's because we're running around and we're stressed out and we're crazy. And when we finally sit down to eat a meal at seven or eight o'clock at night, we go we, we go monkey nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so I I, I I think by force the easiest thing you you, know, you could take cut that in half. Last meal of the day, low carb, high quality, casein enriched protein shake. Yeah. Uh, an hour or so, hour or two before bed as a replacement to your last meal a day. It's it's the easiest thing in the world to shed a couple of pounds if you're already, you know, uh, someone who works out and, and tries to eat right generally throughout the rest of the day. And, again, do the opposite. I mean, if you're going to blow a meal, blow the first one. At least you got all day to burn it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, and this kind of goes with Lowry's temporal nutrition idea where uh, – the first meal of the day is, is, is actually, now refresh my memory, it, it, it actually can be kind of carby because you are, in a sense, filling up glycogen stores and then using it. Like you've been talking about, if guys are in training, then it's a good time to consume carbs if you're into mass. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally agree with what you said, Chris, too. If somebody's looking for an easy way to get started, when I competed last, for the first month of what I did, and I would recommend people at least consider this, you can just drop whether it's a protein shake like you're saying, or uh, I would just eat like two chicken breasts and a, and a plate full of fibrous vegetables. Um, cut the carbs out, fill yourself up on lean meats and vegetables. If you can do that for a month straight, making your dinners like that, then you will change. There will be some change, and that's a one time a day something to focus on. And you know, I, I that's where most people fall off the wagon. It's even in the literature. So there you go. Um, I'll touch on the holiday season thing real quick for Danielle. I mean, I say if something's important enough to start January 1st, it's probably important enough to start today. It doesn't matter if it's holiday. You know? So uh, too many people try to put it, oh, I'm going to start next week, I'm going to start next month. Start, start it now. If it's important enough to do, if it's a goal you have in mind, why wait? Yeah, that's a really good point. And something I heard uh, from a, a, a female friend of mine one time, she said, well, I really want to do uh, this velocity diet, Chris, but I'm going to wait a week because, you know, Monday's my birthday, so I'm going to start the following Monday. And I'm like, your birthday's seven freaking days long? But, you know, she had to go out to eat, you know, eight times mm-hmm. for her birthday. And I'm like, you know, you're 40 years old. Birthdays stop at 12, all right? You're not that special. You're not a beautiful and unique snowflake that deserves your birthday celebrated eight times. Yeah. <laughs> it's your birthday. It's one day. Start the diet the next day if you must. 
And I, and I have to bring in one of my biggest success stories with the Velocity Diet. The guy, he's actually uh, Gus, I believe, the guy who you see his photos in, in the Velocity Diet section of TeamMuscle.com. Really interesting stuff. The guy did it. I believe he, the timing that he did his full transformation was during the holidays. I mean, the guy went to family Christmas dinners and had a protein shake. Cool. And I'm like, there's something very, very powerful about seeing other people do it. That to me, if I see some, you know, the, like the the hardest working people in my gym are the figure competitors. And I always just kind of look and go, okay, if this mom of this 36 year old mom of two kids who also has a job can keep her diet in check and train her ass off, what the heck am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. Very okay. motivational. Um, last one. Do any of us have any bad food addictions? I'll say no. I really don't feel I do. I mean, I can have something one day and not the next, and it doesn't make a difference to me, really. So, sorry if I'm abnormal. <laughs> I, ha- I mean, I definitely have things I really, really like, and even though I've been called a food Nazi, I still, you know, indulge every once in a while and, and, and have something I, I really like. But I, I wouldn't say anything is an addiction anymore. I think it, it took me a long time to kick that. And when I finally, I would not say, and this is the interesting one, this is the whole you controlling food or food controlling you. And this is yeah. one reason why I have a problem with all-out cheat meals is in a way we're putting them in, in their special place. We're putting them up on a pedestal almost where it's like, okay, well, Saturday I'm going to have this. And you're like idol worshiping this food instead of breaking the habit for it completely. So I really, it's not that I don't indulge every once in a while, but I don't think I'm addicted to anything food-wise anymore. Although um, I have to admit, an evening at uh, like Fogo de Chan, one of these Brazilian places that just gives you slabs and slabs of meat, I'll take that over like a dessert buffet in Vegas every single day. I, the, the, the cheat meal thing, I think it's a horrible name too. I mean, it's just giving it too much power. You know, it's just a meal. It is. You know what? Here's an example. I'll divulge here. I, I will sit down and annihilate like a bag of blue corn chips and salsa or sometimes even like crunchy Cheetos or something. But I, you know what? Is it an addiction? Nope. I eat the whole bag or half the bag. I don't care. And I get right back on the wagon. You know what I mean? It's I get back to my usual deal. So do I do that all the time? Hell no. Of course not. But you know what? So what? You know what I mean? So in, in that way, I guess I'm more like Phil, but it doesn't happen. You make alcoholic analogies, but it is very much like an alcoholic. Some people can have a drink. Some people can drink on Friday night and be fine. And for some people, I mean, they're just rolling down the hill the rest of the time. If they if they have that one drink, they're going to have 12, and they're going to get up the next day and start it again. Yep. And I hate to make drug analogies, but I, food is drug-like. And so it, it's very it's very much true. We we, we have a lot to learn about uh, food, and we can learn that from the uh, drug addiction community. Yeah. Well, I think this also boils down that whole food addiction thing boils down to again a healthy relationship with food. Usually, you see the people that have a bad relationship with food are not only you know say obese people or whatnot, but they're the people that they either. Try and say they earn their food by like overtraining before they have a meal, or they punish themselves after having like that half a bag of Fritos, instead mm-hmm. of just accepting it, moving on, and getting back on the shit and punching that clock. Yeah, you know? <laughs> just accept it and go on. It's just something you did. 
can say with 100% honesty, I don't give a crap after I do that. It does, like I said, it happens rare enough that I have no negative emotional connection to that. So what? And that's the difference. You know, I don't fret about it for the next two days. Exactly. All right, man. We, we really need to wrap this up. We've gone over a bit. So I want to thank Chris ten times for being on the show. This was a great one. And uh, Chris, thanks for coming. Yeah, I appreciate thanks, the invite, guys. Anytime. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Great, great conversation. Yeah, good stuff all around. A little bit of self-divulging, some pointers about surfing the web, and uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll have you on again in the future because there's just too much to talk about. Sounds good. Yeah, well, to me. Anytime, guys. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio at ironradio.org is for If you're interested in starting a diet or an exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists 